Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken at Edinburgh, joined remotely this week uh, by Frank Cagliano, who is in Charlottesville. How are things in Charlottesville, Frank? David, good morning. Well, good afternoon for you. Uh, things in Charlottesville are great. The sun is shining. The birds are singing. It's kind of early spring already. It's beautiful here. And I'm, oh. I'm in the United States for the first time in 25 months. And Wow. Well, and, and also uh, welcome back, listeners, because we, we've been off for a couple of weeks, both, uh, well, for lots of reasons, but uh, um, we're, we're thrilled to be back. Yes, yes, um, very much so. Right. Uh, so last week, as everyone knows, that there was the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has prompted a wave of sanctions by both the United States and by another number of other countries against Russia uh, in a response to that invasion. Uh, and the United States has uh, imposed sanctions on a number of countries in the past, uh, say, 50 years. But we wanted to look sort of at the deep history of sanctions and look at, at how effective they are as a tool of diplomacy um, and how important they've been in American history. Should we give a definition, yeah, yeah, Frank, of what sanctions are? Sorry, before we even do that, David, just just by way of a preface, I think it's worth saying, um, like everybody, we're we're probably preoccupied with events in Ukraine. I don't feel that we have a lot to add to that because we're not experts in uh, modern military matters. We're not experts in this in the history of Russia and Eastern Europe. So so, uh, it's not our our. we're not directly commenting on that this week, frankly, because it's too serious for people who don't have expertise to talk about, I think, would, would well, be I mean, what I would yes, say. Yes, but, but I think that, that, that if we look at sort of the history of, of sanctions and how effective they are, that may say something about this current moment. You know, it's, what, uh, it's, what, it's what little bit we have to contribute. That, that, to that, be sure. That's, I mean, <laughs> we we all never really little bits to contribute to anything, but uh, so be it. Yes, yeah, So. Exactly. Uh, but uh, so let's let's go let's go back to, to your since you are in Mont, you know, Monticello right now I think your man Jefferson had some thoughts about about sanctions and was involved in in what is, I think is considered to be the the first case of of the U.S. In, uh, invoking sanctions if that's the right phrasing for this in in 1807. So do you want to tell us yes. who are probably not familiar with this episode? Uh, Sure. And, and if I can paraphrase Sarah Palin, and this is actually true, I can see Monticello from my house right now. Uh, if I look out because the trees are still denuded of leaves, um, I can look up the hill. I'm at, I'm at a kind of property that Jefferson owned called Tufton Farm, uh, which is not far from Monticello. But I can look up from the front porch and see uh, the house on the hill. I always think of the uh, Hank Williams song, The Mansion on the Hill, as I'm having my morning cup of tea and looking up there. Uh, so, so yes, I am at Monticello and Jefferson is on my mind. Uh, and, and so I'm happy to talk about the 1807 embargo. So what happened in 1807, uh, and, and I do think this is germane, this, the, the, uh, sorry, if I can back up. We haven't done this in a while. A- 1807 offers us some instructive lessons uh, about the history of sanctions in the United States and sanctions. Uh, more for the differences, I think, between now and then than, than, than for the, the parallels. But it, it, is, it is an interesting um, uh, first foray into sanctions by the United States. So if you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll say a few words about that. So in, 18, in, the, in the first decade of the 19th century, when Jefferson was president, Jefferson was president, of course, from 1801 to 1809, uh, for two terms, uh, during Jefferson's presidency, throughout Jefferson's presidency, uh, Britain and France and their allies were at war with each other. It's the wars arising from the French Revolution and then uh, no- Napoleon. And the United States had as, had as a stated policy neutrality during those conflicts. And so the United States, which was quite an important Maritime, but not naval player. And by that, I mean the United States was really, really important as a kind of civilian uh, um, shipping power. And it filled the gap because of the because of the war with France and because of the blockade of, of Europe that the Royal Navy instituted. A lot of Britain's naval, a lot of Britain's maritime resources were kind of in, incorporated in the Navy. So uh, Britain was concentrating on the war and, and concentrating on, on, on uh, naval matters. And the United States, as a neutral shipper, filled that gap and was doing a lot of trade with both Britain and its allies and colonies and France 
and its allies and colonies. And the policy of the United States was simply put, we have the right to trade with everybody. We're free traders. We're neutral in this conflict. Um, you know, we'll, we'll trade with anybody we like. Both France and Britain imposed restrictions or attempted to impose restrictions, which could be seen as a form of sanctions, uh, on the United States, which more or less, you know, to put it simply, said, you can trade with us, but you can't trade with them. Um, sure. And, and um, after the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, Britain is dominant on the seas, as we know, Britannia rules the waves and all that nonsense. Uh, and so Britain is in uh, a stronger position to try and coerce the United States and to channel American trade its way and away from France. And it seeks to do so. This is all layered, of course, with that kind of post-colonial um, uh, questions of post-colonial identity and the fact that uh, the Americans are particularly sensitive when it comes to Britain throwing its weight around. France, of course, had been an ally of the United States during the revolution. Britain had been the enemy. And so that, that also um, layers into all of this. But what Britain was doing was two things in particular, seizing American ships, but also taking sailors from American ships and impressing them. We hear about impressment, forcing them to serve in the Royal Navy. Uh, Britain did this on the pretext that some of these uh, sailors were actually deserters from British ships and therefore needed to be um, uh, brought back into the Royal Navy. And in some cases, that was actually true. And so Britain um, impresses th thousands and thousands of American sailors, uh, many of whom were American citizens, and forces them to serve in the Royal Navy. And so these are ongoing. This is an ongoing source of tension between the United States and Britain during Jefferson's presidency. There are several incidents, the most notorious being the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, where British warships stop American ships. And in the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, um, the HMS Leopard stopped the USS Chesapeake, which was actually a U.S. naval ship um, off the coast of Virginia, where I am now, in international waters and fired on it and killed several sailors. And there was a great clamor for war in 1807 in the United States. And in fact, if Jefferson had wanted a declaration of war against Britain in 1807, he probably would have got it. Jefferson realized this probably wasn't going to be, wouldn't work because the United States wasn't prepared for war. And so as an alternative, he suggested an embargo. And the way the embargo would work, I think we've talked about embargoes in the past, but the way the embargo would work would be the United States would refuse to trade with anybody. It would basically take its ball and go home. And the principle behind this was, uh, the, the thinking behind this, at least on, on Jefferson's part, was we have to do this in order to make them realize that they're treating us unfairly, us being the United States, and that they have to um, change their ways. And that when either, of the, and the embargo was meant to be, I think we can see it as the first attempt at sanctions by the United States. It's attempting to use Economic coercion, so it's state-sponsored economic coercion, if you will. It's a policy to use economic coercion uh, by the United States to get another nation to change its practices and, 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 and activities. And that was the intention of the embargo. I actually think that's a slight misreading of the embargo because I also think the embargo might can be read as being preparatory for war, that uh, Jefferson was actually basically saying to American merchant ships, you need to come home because it looks like there's a war uh, in the offing between ourselves and Britain. But but and it is, turns out there was a war in the offing. Well, there five was in later. five years time. Yeah, that's right. Because, and really, the War of 1812 was a result of it can be seen as a result. It's complicated, but as a result of the failure of the embargo. But the Embargo Act of 1807, which takes effect in 1808 and is in force for over a year until 18, early 1809, when James Madison is Jefferson's uh, successor, repeals it because it was a disaster for the United States. This is another part of the story that we might want to consider right now. And I'm sorry to go on at length, but as, as no, that no, first is, precedent, important. it's important. Um, so it's an attempt by the United States to apply economic coercion uh, in the realm of foreign relations. The reason I think it's there are a couple of uh, things I'd observe about this. Uh, one is I do think Jefferson was heavily influenced. We're all influenced by what happened in our youths. Jefferson was thinking about at some level in, in proposing this policy, the pre-war boycotts. And I know we've talked about boycotts mm -hmm. and protests, the kind of pre-war um, by pre-war, I mean, pre-war of independence uh, boycott movement 
um, which was instituted by the so-called patriots during the run-up to the American Revolution. And those boycotts were pretty effective at applying um, uh, economic coercion to the British, and, and or at least Americans believed they had been effective. Whether they were or not is debatable, but they, they, both sides believed they'd been effective. And so there was an American tradition of bringing economic uh, or using economic protest to get the British to change their policies that had some press. And I think Jefferson obviously lived through that and supported those and was familiar with those. And so I think those protest movements, and I think there's a difference between economic protest movements like boycotts and sanctions, which are state-sponsored. Uh, but I think that, that that precedent was important to him. The other thing I'd observe, and then I'll, I'll turn things over to you. You can ask questions if you like, or, or take things. We can move on from the embargo if you like, David. Uh, the other thing I would say is one crucial difference, and I think this is instructive in the current moment, between this early attempt at uh, applying sanctions by the United States and what we're seeing today with respect to Russia uh, is the United States is incredibly weak in 1807. And, and it's it's a minor global uh, player. It doesn't have a lot of clout. It has economic clout. It's got growing economic clout, at least in when it comes to maritime uh, trade. Uh, but it's it's a carrier of other people's goods. It just doesn't have the clout in the system to get its way. It's essentially taking on two of the most important players, at least in the Atlantic state system, France and Britain, and Mm. trying to get them to change their ways. But I I don't want to be disrespectful of any contemporary country, but it would be like a weaker member of the United Nations trying to coerce the United States right now by um, imposing an embargo. Could be effective, but probably not. And so I think what we see is a a disparity in power and, and sanctions when they're effective, and we may talk about whether they're effective or not, are more likely to be effective when it's a uh, basically a stronger power, a great power uh, uh, organizing them. And so, so the embargo of 1807 is an expression of American weakness. One could argue the current sanctions regime being imposed in response to uh, against Russia in response to the invasion of Ukraine could be interpreted as an expression of American strength. We see a lot hmm. of we see a lot of sanctions imposed since 1945, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But those, to a certain extent, represent um, uh, they represent an exercise of power within a state system, an international state system, that the United States, if it doesn't dominate, at least has a, has a preponderance of, 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 of authority in. And, and uh, so that, that context is very different. Sorry, David, I've talked well, I was, I was just thinking about you know, the ways in which the circumstances in 1807 are, are, are different from the circumstances more recently um, and the ways in which it's similar. I mean, I think the, the obvious ways in which it's similar is, is that Jefferson seems to be trying to put as much pressure as he can upon foreign nations short of going to war, that this is, as an old, right. you know, that, that sanctions are a method of pressure that is, can be severe, and we'll talk about some cases in which it is. But it's 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 decidedly a not it's not intended as a belligerent act in the in an overt way, the way that shooting people would be. Um, the you know the other thing that strikes me that's going to be different though between between the 1807 example and and today is Jefferson. I would imagine would have actually had to go to Congress and ask for Congress. To pass a law to place the sanctions, you know, one of the things I think we'll see in the 20th century is that that much more the power uh, for imposing sanctions rests with the president, uh, and so it's a the politics of it are 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 different in, in in that respect. So, so why didn't the embargo work in 1807? I'm assuming it didn't work. That's my my read. No, no, it did not work. It did not work. Uh, I was, sorry, if I can respond to those two things you said, I think you're right. And I, I think you, you you said something explicitly, that which I should have, which is this is seen as an alternative to war. It, it's meant to be uh, a step short of war. And I think that's important. Uh, and and Jefferson did have to get congressional approval. So he gets the, the Embargo Act is adopted by, by Congress. It doesn't work for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, 
Britain and France depend on Amer the American carrying trade, as it's called, but not quite as much as as the United States believed they did. And mm -hmm. so they sought, sought alternatives. The other reason is, and we see this with we frequently with sanctions regimes, um, it's leaky. People cheat. Um, yeah. Especially American merchants continue to trade despite the despite the embargo uh, and the United States coercive power. The coercive power of the United States is not very great in terms of enforcing this. So we see an increase in smuggling um, across the international borders of the United States into Canada and into Florida, for example. And then um, goods are being shipped uh, from from those locales. We're also seeing ships just going. You know, I mean, so it doesn't work yet. It also has a devastating impact on the American economy. The, the impact on the American economy is much greater than the impact on either the economy, the, the economies of either Britain or France. So, so it's, it's to, a, to a large extent, a self-inflicted wound and, mm -hmm. and the, 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 the harm is greater. And so it collapses. It's replaced. They have a kind of face saving um uh, solution when when Madison becomes president and when he's sworn in in March of 1809, he replaces the Embargo Act. He has Congress adopt something um, called the Non-Intercourse Act, which often causes uh, tittering from immature undergraduates when you say the United States forbade intercourse. Um, but but um, the Non-Intercourse Act basically stipulated that the United States wouldn't trade with Britain and France in particular, but if either of them relax the restrictions on, on, on U.S. trade, they could go back to the status quo ante. And um, that is totally, I mean, it's totally unenforceable because it means the ships can leave ports and they can go trade with whoever they like. And so it, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. And I guess that reveals another aspect of the modern um, sanctions regime that we see because powerful countries can impose sanctions in part because they have to be able to enforce the sanctions. There has to be a sanction. There's no real sanction in 1807, no significant sanction. Uh, and, and so it, it's pretty much a, a disaster, I think. And that's the, that's the kind of historical consensus that this is a disaster. I think it's a little, Jefferson gets criticized for this, and it's the low point of his presidency. And the usual criticism is, oh, he was so naive about international affairs, and he was so naive about economics that he, you know, he was an idealist who was trying to seek an alternative to war. I don't think that's not my reading of this. I think he's actually quite realistic about this. He recognized the United States does not have the wherewithal to fight Britain in 1807. Frankly, it wouldn't have the wherewithal to fight Britain in 1812, as we know. Uh, mm. And therefore, this is a step short of war when they basically didn't have a lot of alternatives. So these are coming from a, a position of weakness. I think the sanctions regimes we see in the 20th century, especially the last half of the 20th century, in the early decades of the 21st century, to a large extent, come from a position of relative strength for the United States. And that's a crucial difference. Hmm. Okay. Well, and one of the things, the, the ways that this is often described um, is one of the impacts of, of, of the embargo and the failure of the embargo is it actually dissuaded Americans from trying to do sanctions for most of the rest of the 19th century on the supposition that they, they don't really work um, and often backfire as the case that as the embargo did in you know, devastating New England shipping and what have you. Um, you know, there are very few sanctions in the 19th century. Most sort of texts on, on the history of sanctions basically say there aren't any. The one exception, uh, I, would, yep. the one exception I would point to uh, has to do with Native Americans. You know, and if you treat Native Americans as, as separate distinct nations with, with, with which the United States has uh, trading relationships, um, the United States imposes uh, especially in the first decades of the 19th century, a series of regulations on trade with Native Americans. These are also called non-intercourse acts. And so there's a bunch of them. Uh, some of them were passed uh, you know, during Jefferson's presidency, but the ones that I think are really critical are the ones that are passed in the 1830s, uh, in which there are a number, which is of course the same decade that you have Indian removal and which the government places real restrictions on trade with Native Americans specifically looking at, at two categories of goods. The first is alcohol, and there's some pretty severe restrictions placed on trading alcohol with Native Americans. 
And the second is with firearms, uh, which the government designates specific agents who are, are empowered to trade firearms with Native Americans. Um, but that also then allows them to sort of withdraw the trade of, of firearms when Native Americans are not doing whatever it is the United States government wants them to do. So it gives them a leverage for, you know, as an alternative to war to try to pressure Native Americans um, uh, to sign treaties that are disadvantageous to them or, or what have you. Um, and so I think that's one area in which, you know, the, the, the United States government is really uh, imposing sanctions is actually on people within the territorial bounds of the U.S. itself. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I, and I think you're right to frame, uh, to you know, to, to to remind us and remind our listeners that international relations for the United States isn't just with European powers in the 19th century, but also um, with, with with indigenous powers as well. So I think that that's important. Uh, I think it's interesting because there, there's a in doing the reading for this episode, David, and thinking a lot about this in recent days. There's a close. Um, correlation between sanctions regimes and sanctions programs and embargoes. And often embargoes are, are, a, um, are a, a form of sanction. I think, I've, you know, in talking about 1807, I think uh, we've tried to demonstrate that over the past few minutes. But arms embargoes in particular are interesting tools in the history of U.S. foreign policy. And we think of them in the run-up to World War I and things like that. But yours is, a, is an important reminder uh, that the, the precedent for arms embargoes, um, the roots for those go much deeper uh, in the 19th century. I want to ask you about a 19th, you know, the, about your period in particular, though your area of specialism, which is the uh, the Civil War. Because might not the Union blockade of the Confederacy be seen as a sanctions regime, particularly as it was intended to prevent? other powers, particularly the British and French and other European powers um, from trading with the Confederacy. And I think about this because in the run-up to the 1807 embargo, uh, Britain had an embargo, had, a, had a blockade of Europe, and that was a justification in international law for interfering with American shipping because the British said, we have an embargo, sorry, we have a blockade, we've declared a blockade of the European continent, yeah. and you're violating it, and so therefore we can seize your ships. And so that could be seen as, well, it could be, I'm asking you, my question mm -hmm. is, should the blockade of the Confederacy, it's a little different because the Union or the United States was at war with the Confederacy yeah. at the time, but could it be seen as a, as a sanctions regime? Uh, I don't think so, in part because they are actually at war, right? And, and, and at least the ways in which... Um, political thinkers in the 19th century thought about blockades. They, they thought about blockades into two categories. One were blockades in the context of war, like the Union blockade of the Confederacy, where it is part and parcel of a broader military action. Um, there was a phenomenon in the 19th century uh, of what were called Pacific blockades, Pacific meaning peaceful blockades as opposed to a military blockade, not Pacific in terms of the ocean. Um, and these were actually very common in Europe in the 19th century, where you had a blockade as a kind of economic sanction, short of war. And it's usually done by um, powerful countries against much less powerful countries. Britain does this a lot. France does this a lot. Uh, Italy and Germany do this sometimes. And they do it against countries like Turkey which has a, a blockade of it in 1827, Portugal in 1831, Holland has one, uh, Colombia, Panama, Mexico. There's a bunch of these that happen. Greece gets uh, has a blockade put in place that restricts trade in 1850. Uh, and these are all cases where the small country is doing something that the larger country doesn't like. And, and the way they sort of impose their will upon them, short of actually sending troops in is, is by cutting them off economically from everybody else, which is easy to do if you're the British Navy and you've got a huge Navy and you're blockading a relatively small country. But those kinds of blockades in international law were considered different from the kinds of blockades that took place in the context of, of war. Um, and the Union blockade gets kind of tricky uh, in that respect because 
you can blockade an enemy country, but the United States claimed during the Civil War the Confederacy was not its own country. Sure. So then you're blockading your own ports. Is that legal under international law? And there were debates about 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 the sort of legality of that, depending on, on how you sort of make sense of, of the independence or lack thereof of the Confederacy as its own country. Uh, but at least in my mind, I think that's a different sort of category of thing than the kinds of blockades that are done, that are acts that are short of war. Um, that's 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 me. I read on those. What do you think? Uh, again, I've been thinking about the uh, current uh, debate, or or well, I don't know whether it's even amounts to a debate, but the current discussion about whether to impose an, whether NATO should impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and we've seen no-fly zones in Iraq. Uh, we saw no-fly no zones in Iraq between the uh, first and second uh, invasions of that country. Uh, by, by the United States and its allies. We've seen no-fly zones in the Balkans occasionally um, in, in, during the conflicts there in the 90s. Are no-fly zones the modern equivalent of the, of the naval blockade of the 19th century? That's a good question. Uh, for me, the, the distinction with the, between it, uh, the, the problem with a no-fly zone is then what happens when the Russians violate the no-fly zone. Do you then shoot down the Russian plane? Because then you're actually at war. Um, you know that that you know, I think one of the ideas behind sanctions, uh, I think one of the sort of driving motivations that's sort of uniting um, countries that are supporting Ukraine. Uh, diplomatically, but are not supporting Ukraine in terms of actually putting boots on the ground or planes in the air, it is they want to take as many steps as they can take short of antagonizing Russia into a military conflict, which of course, you know, the consequences of that would be, be devastating once, once, you know, those gloves are off. Um, that would be my read about how those, you know, that, 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 that implementing a no-fly zone is a whole order of magnitude different. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think a no, a no fly zone is a military act, and it does beg the question of what you're doing about enforcement in the event of, of its violation. You can't just hope it's not violated. I mean, it, 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 it's, um, I think it's different from a sanctions regime. I mean, one thing we see about sanctions, particularly as they're being applied, uh, is, is they're not um, they're, they're seen as an alternative to war, not an, a, and and uh, an attempt to influence exchange behavior short of war. Um, although in the history of sanctions, we know that these can often take a significant toll on people, particularly civilians. Um, but but they're they're seen as a, as a non-military alternative, whereas a no-fly zone, and we we are probably splitting hairs here, is a it, it's a military act. Oh, to be sure. Right. Yeah. So, because so I mean, I the, the implication is if that, 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 that you're going to be shooting people uh, who violate yeah. the no fly zone. Um, you know, and, and I think avoiding escalating, well, I think that the, the, the Biden administration and, and various European allies and, and most of the rest of the world are, are at a uh, very tricky place right now trying to figure out what the, what the, how to navigate, you know, these alternatives. Yeah, I think to, one way to think about the difference would be the what we've seen is a lot of countries, dozens and dozens of countries, mm. have denied Russia the use the overflight of its air of their airspace. Um, you know, so that Russian airliners and uh, private jets owned by Russian oligarchs are being denied um, the right to fly over many most European countries, the United States, and so on. And I think that's a sanction. Whereas yes. a no-fly zone is a military act. I think there's, a, I, I think those things are related. In, they relate to who can fly where and mm. under what circumstances. But I think that's a, perhaps a helpful way of thinking about the distinction between um, a sanction and a and a um, well, an overt military act. And sanctions are meant to either supplement and support military activity, which I think is what we're seeing in 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 uh, Ukraine or they are alternatives to it, but they're not the same thing as military activity. Um, so that would be my, so, so, so David, we get a lot of sanctions, uh, the kind of modern sanctions regime 
begins in the 20th century, I think, and fits and starts around the period of the First World War and really gains steam after the Second World War. Do you want to say a little bit about well, that? Well, I think, yeah, the, I think the First World War is really critical uh, for for the idea of sanctions and the sort of role of sanctions on the, on the global stage. I mean, I think one of the things about um, the sanctions being placed against Russia at the moment is, is it's a multilateral sanctions regime that's being put in place by by a number of countries. I think that's if, if it is going to be effective, it's because of that level, you know, and in the aftermath, I think of the First World War, people saw sanctions as as a way to potentially prevent war. I think, you know, the idea of sanctions was embedded very much into the the League of Nations. Article 16 of the League of Nations Charter basically set up this structure whereby, uh, you know, if one country waged war against another, the, the initial way that you punish them for that military aggression is by everybody else launching sanctions against that country. And so it was sort of seen as, as here's a civilized way that we can prevent Another world war is by using the economic power that the collective League of Nations would have to isolate bad actors through the use of sanctions rather than the use of guns. Um, and so that, you know, this is sort of uh, was a big part of, of, of how the League of Nations was supposed to work. Um, Wilson was a, a big proponent of sanctions as, as a tool, um, as an alternative to, to, to military action. Um, but that was actually one of the things I think that contributed to the League of Nations not being ratified by the United States is because I think there was a fear that they, the United States would be compelled into sanctions that they, the United States wasn't interested in, that the League of Nations would, would sort of strip American sovereignty in that respect. Uh, but we do have a number of cases of the League of Nations using sanctions effectively in the 20s. Um, there's a case in, in where uh, the Yugoslav government was threatening Albania and they um, launched sanctions against them. There's another case uh, with Greece and Bulgaria that stops because of sanctions there. Um, they try to use sanctions against Italy in 1935. That doesn't work as well. Uh, but there are a number of cases of, of sanctions being used by the, by the UN, or sorry, not by the, by the League of Nations, I should say. Um, in the 20s and 30s as, as an alternative to, to traditional military action. Uh, but it works best with, against small countries. You know, it works best against Greece and Yugoslavia, not necessarily against uh, larger actors, I guess. Well, and uh, again, to think about 1807, the world has always had different periods, great powers and lesser powers, and great powers often call the shots. What we're seeing is, in the, in the contemporary um, moment, is an attempt to sanction a great power, uh, or certainly a strong power, military power for its actions, but uh, um, whether that will be effective or not remains to be seen. Whether the, the, that regime will be effective or not remains to be seen, I think. Well, the examples you gave, you're right, our collective action against um, relatively uh, small powers at the time um, for their actions for a relatively limited period of time rather uh -huh. than an open-ended sanction regime. Yeah, uh, the, so while that's going on in Europe, the United States is doing some um, sanctions adjacent thing. They, 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 they restrict the sale of helium. There's a helium act in 1925 that's supposed to sort of limit military power of, of potential enemies of the United States. Uh, the United States is the major producer of helium in the world, or at least it was in 1925. Um, the United States also signs on to sanctions against Japan, I think in the lead up to the, to the or not in the lead up, it's the well, Second World War has started, uh, but the United States is not yet involved in, in 1940. Um, and this is actually one of the cases where, and I think we'll see a number of these in the 20th century, where sanctions potentially backfire. And what happened with Japan in, in, in 1940, to, to oversimplify a very complicated story, 
you know, as Japan ha has expanded its empire into, into parts of China, into uh, French Indochina, um, and in response to those military uh, acts, uh, the United States and some of its allies uh, placed sanctions on Japan, restricting uh, the sale of, of oil, of iron, uh, steel, and a few other uh, material that were seen as critical to the, the Japanese uh, military enterprise. Uh, this was a coalition of the United States, um, Britain, China, and the Netherlands. And so consequentially, this gets called the ABCD line in Japan for America, Britain, China, and, and uh, the Dutch. And of course, the, the intention of the sanctions is to try to restrict Japan from, from a military expansion, but in some ways it actually tapped, the opposite happens, that, that Japan responds by seeing this act of sanctions as a act of aggression against them, and it causes them to want to expand into uh, the Dutch East Indies, uh, and ultimately the attack on Pearl Harbor, they justify as, as part of this uh, aggression they see in the form of sanctions. Um, so that's a case in which the sanctions actually had this sort of opposite effect. They, instead of decreasing Japanese militarism, it actually exacerbates it. And, and positions the United States as a, a, an enemy of Japan in a way that maybe hadn't been beforehand. Right, and so what do we see? So, so after the Second World War, we see a whole, I mean, we see a raft of sanctions um, often sponsored by the United States. I think the crucial difference there is, unlike what we saw in the interwar period with the United States emerging as a strong power, but being outside of the League of Nations, we have an international framework in the form of the United Nations and NATO and various other um, transnational organizations, which are largely US dominated, uh, but are able to marshal international um, uh, some international support, at least among the allies of the United States, for to for imposing sanctions against various state actors eventually it'll be non-state actors in terms of terrorist groups or, or alleged terrorist groups uh we, we see a fairly um robust uh sanctions um uh, framework emerge in, in the post-war period is it effective that's a good question uh and i think it depends on which example you're looking at i mean we can sure. think um, you know, there's a number of number of countries the United States has had sanctions against for a very long time, um, and they do so with the intention of, of trying to cause those countries to behave in a different ways than they have been. Um, and, and in some ways, they, they, they have been not particularly effective in doing that. We can think of some examples. Uh, North Korea, the United States has had sanctions against North Korea since 1950 with the intention of trying to topple the North Korean regime, causing the North Korean people to rise up against their government or, or some other kind of, of permutation thereof. Clearly that hasn't happened yet. Uh, sort of the, the bigger uh, example closer to home, of course, is the, the sanctions against Cuba, which start in uh, a, a limited form in 1958, but then get expanded to pretty much all trade in 1962. Again, trying to push the, the Cuban government uh, to overthrow the Castro regime um, and to, to uh, you know, have different sets of, of policy agendas. Those have also failed in as much as, as the, the, the political regime in both of those countries has not changed in a meaningful way. And if anything, one can make an argument that, that those sanctions have actually strengthened those regimes in terms of their domestic economy or domestic political situation. They can blame any problems they're having on the hostility of the rest of the world, especially the big bully of the United States to them. So Castro and Castro's successors can say, look, any problems that exist in Cuba are not the problems that they are causing and the problems are caused by the United States and the evil uh, blockade. Um, 
And so I think, you know, those are some examples of ones that haven't worked very well. I think you've seen a similar situation uh, with uh, Venezuela, where, where there have been sanctions against Venezuela uh, since, since 2019, and those have only actually seem to have uh, exacerbated the, the, the control of the government and using the United States as a foil against them. What do you think about the the regime? Which ones strike out to you as being the important ones to think about? I think I think those are all good examples. I think there's a, I, I think there's a distinction to be drawn between sanctions, which are aimed that, that are often limited, but also have a particular. They're aimed at a particular policy or reversing a particular um, uh, course of action, rather than changing a regime completely. Because what we see happen, and we're seeing this right now, I think the sanctions that are being imposed on Russia right now, in part because of their widespread adoption, there seems to be a kind of unanimity about these that, that's unusual in most of these cases, uh, are quite effective. But what happens is eventually um, states that are subject to sanctions or even individuals who are subject to sanctions, I think that's an element of this we want to talk about as well, uh, find ways to work around them. So the longer they're in place, often the less effective they will be. Mm. And when, it, when there are sanctions being imposed on a kind of um, on a state to um, encourage regime change like the Cuban embargo, well, those aren't, those aren't always, the, the goal isn't, isn't necessarily an achievable one. And that means that people learn to work around the sanctions and Often, and this is a danger, and this is something one reads about in the literature on sanctions, the entity imposing the sanctions or the country imposing the sanctions in the United in case of the United States often suffers in the long run because it misses out on trade. And, and you know, people will make other arrangements if these go on too long. They can be quite effective in the relative short term, especially if there's a specific goal mm. in mind. And so one thinks, and, and it's difficult to um you know, one, one can think about the sanctions that were imposed on um, Serbia during the wars um, in, in Yugoslavia 25 years ago that were pretty effective and helped along with some uh, military intervention to bring those conflicts to an end. So there, there are, I think when there's a clearer objective yeah. and there's a bigger kind of coalition of, of uh, partners willing to support the sanctions, they tend to be more effective. Sorry, the United States having an embargo on Cuba isn't that effective when Canadians and Americans will go to Cuba, sorry, Canadians and Europeans will go to Cuba and, and spend, spend their tourist dollars or euros or what have you, or pounds. Sure, um, in the, the, the example that comes to mind about you know, things that are very targeted that were effective uh, had to do with the sanctions on Iran placed in yeah. 1979, where it specifically, you know, it was connected to, to lots of things, but specifically to the, the hostages being held. And, you know, the, those sank, those particular set of sanctions were then removed when the hostages were released in 1981. They later get imposed again for, for other, a whole host of other reasons. Um, but there was at least a, uh, a, a specific target for the, for those sanctions. Um, it does seem one of the things that, that's striking people on the research on this is that sanctions have become a much more common phenomenon in not only during the Cold War, but even especially in the post-Cold War period, that the, the sanctions as a tool have become um, it, uh, one, one study I said uh, the sanctions used doubled during the 90s and then it doubled again in the 2010s. Um, now, I think some of this has to do with the, the complexity of the global economy and the ability of governments to do things. Um, but the other part of it, I think, is, is a reluctance to, to use military force, right? Like the sanctions are, are a really good tool if you want to be able to tell your voters, look, I am addressing this major problem. We've imposed sanctions, so we are doing something about it, but we are not putting American lives in danger. And, and it allows you to say both of those things. Yes, I'm a serious, taking this problem seriously, but no, I'm not putting anyone's lives in danger. Whether those sanctions are actually effective or not, and I think economists who have looked at them have said that a, a, you know, sanctions really only work about a third of the time, uh, depending on how you want to judge these things. Um, 
you know, whether it is a, a tool that actually has as much teeth, but it's a, a good political move. Well, thank you, David. Uh, if you think about periods when sanctions have really um, been used a lot, so, so, so think about the discussion we've just had. We see the 20s and 30s in the aftermath of the First World War. In the 50s and 60s, we get the modern kind of sanction regime coming in in the aftermath of the Second World War. Mm. You talked about the 90s and the 2010s. Well, the 90s, of course, was the aftermath of the Cold War. Cold War sure. okay, you know, you know, we don't want to go back to that. Uh, and in the <laughs> 2010s, of course, you know, uh, the United States was still at war, of course, in, in Afghanistan um, at that period. But after a decade of war following 9/11, so so I think there's a. I I, I don't think it's, and I, I don't I don't think you were suggesting it's. Hmm. It's not as cynical as oh, we're, we want to show we're doing something. I think. Sanctions are, and this is where we're back to the Jeffersonian idealism, mm. maybe that interpretation, that serious people see them as an alternative to war. Uh, the United States has got a kind of um, Gulliver problem in that, it, you know, it, it, you can't always use force in every case, because if you do, you know, that leads to anarchy. Right. And so, you, need, you know, it, it's almost too strong for some of this period mm. to, to use its military force. And so it's an attempt to find an alternative to that. And we're seeing that in the terrible circumstances today. It, it you know, the United States and its allies uh, won't go to war with Russia over Ukraine because that war could be the third world war, at least are, are seem to be unwilling to do so, but want to do something to assist the Ukrainians in their resistance and to try and change Russia's uh, behavior and to stop the, hopefully to stop the invasion or, or to, to, to roll it back short of war. And, and so we're seeing sanctions as the they're the alternative to war. If there's a consistency yeah. in this whole discussion, I think it's that. Uh, oh, to be sure. What, what I think is interesting in the current moment, though, and I, and I alluded to this a minute ago, is we've, we in, in, in the West and certainly in the United States have, have in the past 25 years really started to have targeted sanctions at individuals. And I think that those could be more effective than sort of, sort of an embargo on Cuba saying, OK, we're going to target the oligarchs who support Vladimir Putin and want to send their kids to fancy private schools in the UK or United States and want to have flats in London and Manhattan and Paris. And we're going to target them. And that might be more effective than kind of blanket sanctions against an entire country, although those two can have their um, can can have their place. And I think that's an interesting dimension yeah. to this. Well, you know, one, one of the, the that's a good point. I think one of the one of the Concerns about sanctions, and we saw this uh, in a number of cases. But uh, the the case that strikes me is with, is with with Iraq. You know, when the United States had sanctions against Iraq, the, the the feeling was that these were sanctions that were intended to target the Saddam Hussein regime, but in fact were only really affecting the the people of Iraq who were being harmed because they didn't have access to medicine or other various goods because of of, of the the sanctions imposed. Um, and that people like, you know, dictators like Saddam Hussein could then say, look, you don't have medicine, not because I'm a bad leader, but because the rest of the world hates us. And we, I, I am your defender on the, on the world stage. Um, and denying medicine to children is a really bad look, even if the sanction regime might, you know, it, it, it just, it, it, it's really... It, it undermines the support for sanctions and what you need. I think one thing that uh, history has demonstrated is that for sanctions to be effective, they need mm. to be widespread and the, the support needs to be widespread. And we saw this very early on in Iraq where the sanctions regime broke down mm. because neighboring countries often with very noble intentions because they didn't want to see children dying for lack of medicine would violate the sanctions um and often this and this led to discord between the united states and some of its allies again it's very very early days we're, we're only a week into this terrible war in ukraine but there's a degree of international um unanimity around these sanctions at least mm. at the moment that might make them effective and again it's much better to target an oligarch and his yacht his super <laughs> <Yes>. yacht <laughs> than denying children medicine and so so the the the, the kind of ad hominem sanctions mm. uh, might be might be effective especially if there's international uh, if there's broad international support for them 
and I think we have the capacity to target people now in a way that that wasn't possible financially, you know, in, in earlier decades. I mean, thinking about effect, you know, the the multinational as aspect of effective sanctions, I think, are important. Uh, you know, some people have pointed to the sanctions imposed against South Africa uh, in the 1980s and the role that that had in in overturning apartheid. There's been some debates about how important that international sanctions were, but they at least had a some role in in that uh, transition in in South Africa. Um, the concern I have about sanctions with, with with against Russia, of course, is that the Putin will use it to, to to only bolster his sort of authority within the country and say, look, we 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 don't need the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't like us or appreciate us, and I'm your savior against that. Which seems to be the um, we've seen examples of, of other countries where that, that has been the effect. Yeah, but what's the alternative? Mm. That, that 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 is the tricky part here. So is there there are, there are we're, we're in a land of not very good alternatives. Yeah. The other thing nice about Putin, being nice to Putin in the hopes that he'll be nice to us doesn't seem to have worked. Yeah, we, we, they, we've tried that. I think George W. Bush looked into his soul or something, and so you know, <sighs> one of the also interesting things about sanctions, though, from the, the American perspective, is that as a consequence of a series of of, of, of legal changes, it's one of the things that and this again makes it different from 1807, is it something the president can do by himself. Uh, and so the background to this is there was a Trading with the Enemy Act in 1917 that gave the president power to restrict trade against countries the United States was at war with, but that was amended in 1933 uh, during the banking crisis in which he gave the president to issue sanctions during peacetime as well in any time the president determined there was a crisis. And that was re revised a little bit in the 70s, uh, but sanctions today are something that the president can do unilaterally and, and both imposing them and taking them away, which is different than, than what, what Jefferson had to face where he had to go to Congress and persuade Congress of, of the sort of need to, to impose sanctions. Um, you know, and, and given the political situation we're in right now, thinking about the State of the Union last night uh, and what have you, you know, sanctions are, are one area in which, which Biden can act um, without having to run it by Congress and lengthy debates thereon. Yeah, I mean, it's of a piece with the kind of longer term trend that political scientists and historians have observed, which is um, in the current United States, the, the president increasingly, whichever party, he or eventually she represents is very limited as to what they can do domestically because of the, uh, the, the problems in the system that we've discussed at some length in different episodes. Yet there's this contrast because the president has vast authority when it comes to international relations and exercising um, the power on behalf of the United States. So, so, so um, the, the president is very limited as to what uh, he can do domestically, but, but has pretty wide um has huge powers when it comes to, to matters international. And uh, that's the way the system's evolved in the past seven or eight decades. To be sure. Yeah. All right. We will watch this unfold with, with uh, great interest and, and apprehension, because I think this is a, a very scary situation going on, uh, both for the people of the Ukraine and, and for, for the rest of the world, because this, this is, could turn out very badly or even worse than it is. And it's already turned out pretty badly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's end on a happy note, Frank. Well, it's we, well, time for last drops. What do we got? Yeah. So, so my last drop is I want to give a shout out to the Getting Word Project here at Monticello. I might've mentioned this in the past, but if so, it deserves a second mention anyway. And Getting Word is an oral history project, which uh, st they started here at Monticello uh, back in 1992, 93. And it's had a series of directors who, and the, the, the aim of the project is to collect the oral histories of the descendants of those people who were enslaved at Monticello. Um, and they have tracked people down all over the United States and all over the world um, and, and uh, who are descended from those who were enslaved here at Monticello. And at the moment, the project is uh, being led by a young scholar named Andrew Davenport. Andrew's getting a PhD at Georgetown University at the moment. 
And um, uh, what Andrew's in charge of doing or, and his team, he's got a great team working for him. Uh, they are um, digitizing this vast archive. It's a pretty significant archive they've acquired and it's growing all the time. And they're digitizing this and making this available to, to people. And I'll give you just one anecdote that Andrew shared with me the other day when I was having a cup of coffee with him. Uh, he said they've got this story of, of a descendant from the Fawcett family who are a prominent enslaved family here at Monticello during Jefferson's time who went out to California and made a, a lot of money. This was a formerly enslaved woman uh, in San Francisco during the gold rush in the 1850s and subsequently um, married a white man. She amassed a fortune that her husband inherited when she died, but there was a prolonged, there was a big legal battle between her descendants uh, from a previous marriage and her husband when she died over her fortune. It's not entirely clear how she made her money. It may have been via some connection with prostitution. Uh, but it's an interesting story. And what, what becomes clear, what became clear to me in talking to, to Andrew about this is that um, you know, this story doesn't end in 1826 with Thomas Jefferson's death. It doesn't end with the sale of the estate at Monticello in 1827. In fact, it's just beginning then, because what we see is, whether it's the California gold rush or you know, the, these families and their stories are the stories of American history over the past two, two centuries. And it's a really, really interesting project. So it's not just about Jefferson, uh, although there is this important Jefferson component to it, it it's a lot more more than that, and a lot more interesting than that. And I just want to uh, tip my cap to, to metaphorically to to, to um, Andrew Davenport and the Getting Word team, and also alert you all to this so that when the, the the project is fully digitized and we can all see this online, you should check it out. Very cool. Very very yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is very cool. So, well, what about you, David? Uh, well, I want to plug uh, for those people who are listening to this shortly after we uh, upload it uh, that this weekend is uh, SASA, the Scottish Association for the Study of America's annual conference is being held this Saturday. Uh, and you can still register uh, to attend the conference online. Um, and so we'll put a link to the SASA registration, uh, which is a really, really great conference. I mean, especially for people who are earlier in their academic career, it's a great place to present your first academic paper uh, to a really, I think is a friendly sort of welcoming environment for, for that kind of, of scholarship for, especially for, uh, you know, it's originally targeting for early career uh, historians in Scotland, but in recent years, it's uh, SAS has attracted people from further afield. Uh, and so it's a, it's a good time. So if you're looking for something to do on Saturday, by all means, register for SASA and, and, and drop in. But hold on, David, you're also ending your term as president of SASA uh, this weekend. I've, I've, I've been I've been chair of SASA for three years now, and I, I am uh, will no longer be chair of SASA uh, by Saturday evening. So, yes. Well, congratulations oh, and thank you. you. Unless hold on. I noticed you didn't mention this. So that is either a good example of your typical uh, Silconadian humility <laughs> or you're intending not to recognize the authority of the presidential voting. You're planning to stay in office and you will be declaring at the Sasa banquet on Saturday night that your supporters should storm the council and insist that your term is extended. Are you going to do that? Uh, uh, no. Uh, on, on no grounds am I going to demand or encourage people to extend my term of, of office. I've enjoyed uh, very much being, being the chair of SASA, uh, although past three years have been a bit weird to be a head of an academic organization, uh, but I'm, I'm going to be very help, uh, grateful to, to let other people uh, have the reins for, for a bit. Okay, so you have said this, you will relinquish power. On I will <laughs> relinquish power, yes. <laughs> Okay. I, I fully intend to step down. In fact, I'm, you know, yes. Okay. I'm done. Thank you. Believe <laughs> well, uh, in democracy so, and all those kinds of good things. Joking aside, thank you for serving the organization oh. as well as you have, David. Oh, thank you very much, Frank. All right. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 